you see it right now with monkeypox. They see it right now. The kind, you know, the, the the initial observation. It seems to be in this particular community. Let's really focus on that. Um, you know, I there's there's various people who are pointing out. You know, this is a this is a community that's fairly attuned to their health because of you know this exact thing happening in the eighties. Um, you know, AIDS was originally called GRID, which was gay-related immunodeficiency, right? That's how it was framed initially before it became known as AIDS. So there's mm-hmm. a community that's very attuned to their health and very, I think, sensitive to that kind of framing. You know, they may very well be much more likely to, you know, say, I don't know what this, you know, symptom is. I'm going to get checked out and be, you know, um, reporting it. You saw the same thing when Omicron arose and was first detected in South Africa. Um, doesn't mean it arose in South Africa. South Africa has a very sophisticated surveillance system for, for pathogens, and they found this variant and reported it to the world. And how did we react? We banned travel from a bunch of African countries, including ones where it had not been detected yet. Whereas it showed up in Europe and we did not ban any travel from those countries. So, I mean, you know, these decisions, these biases are always sort of part of that. Welcome back to Beyond Culture, with a podcast that attempts to bridge the gap between culture and politics. I'm your co-host, Abel. In this episode, we talk to Professor Ryan Gregory, who is an evolutionary biologist and genome biologist at the University of Guelph. We talk to Professor Ryan Gregory about evolutionary biology, and most specifically, his primary research focus, which is genome evolution. We discuss how similar the stigmatization regarding monkeypox is to the earlier reporting on HIV-AIDS and how dangerous that sort of discourse can be. We also talked about the different responses to the pandemic by governments and whether herd immunity was ever a plausible solution. Finally, we touched on the subject of biases in decision-making regarding COVID and other viral outbreaks. Take a listen. Welcome back to Beyond Culture. Today we have a special guest with us, Brian Gregory. Thank you for joining us uh, uh, for this conversation. My pleasure. Uh, I got I to ask, I got to ask, um, you are a professor, a genome specialist, professor of uh, evolutionary, evolutionary biology, can you kind of explain those fields to me and uh, kind of the work you do in those fields? Because I've, I've I've heard of a bit, but I don't I don't sure. fully comprehend. Yep. So, well, evolutionary biology uh, generally is the study of the history of life, the relationships among different living things, how genetic variation changes in populations over generations, how complex traits like eyes or immune systems evolve. Um, Other people will study things like extinction risk or the impacts of climate change on populations and so on. So it's it's really very broad discipline within biology that focuses on questions about evolutionary relationships and processes. My specific area within that is genome biology, as you said, and in particular, I'm interested in questions about uh, amounts of DNA in different species and why it varies the way it does. So uh, we like to think of humans as, you know, pretty complex. Uh, we have a genome with, you know, 3 billion nucleotides or base pairs in it. Uh, 
but that's not by any stretch the biggest genome out there. So there's some salamanders with 40 times more DNA than humans have. Onions have five times as much DNA as humans. And then there's some things like pufferfish, which are also pretty complicated and have maybe one-tenth as much DNA as humans. So across animals, uh, the amount of DNA in the genome ranges about 7,000-fold, and it's not clear why. And it hasn't been clear since sort of the 1940s when people first started looking at amounts of DNA in different species. But it does relate to things like how big the cell is, how slowly the cell divides, and then that can have relationships with things like developmental rate, so how fast things can grow through cell division, uh, metabolic rate uh, due to the cell size effect. So you tend to see small genomes and things that fly, bigger genomes and things that don't fly, those kinds of questions. So some of it is just going out and looking at what is the variability out there in different groups of animals. And then some of it is asking questions about what is the biological relevance of it? Does it affect organisms in some way? And then the other thing we look at is, is what's in different genomes of different sizes. So most of the human genome, for example, is not genes. We like to think of it as, you know, sequences that encode instructions for making our bodies to, and making proteins that, that build up our bodies. But less than 2% of the DNA in your cells actually does that. And a very large fraction, more than half probably, is made up of sequences that are basically parasites of the genome. At least initially, they're able to make copies of themselves. Some of them are literally derived from what were previously free-living viruses that got integrated into the genome and are now just permanent parts of the genome. So most of your DNA is not protein-coding genes. And we're interested in what are those differences across species with different amounts of DNA? What is making up the difference? And then what does it mean for organisms? So that's sort of my oh. sub-area within evolutionary biology. Okay, I see. And uh, I, I would hope you could enlighten me a bit into what's currently I've just been, you know, a lot of people have seen it on the news. I've seen it as well. You know, this, uh, the monkeypox, which is, uh, which has been, you know, uh, we've seen a few infections here and there. Uh, I wanted to ask, should we be worried about it? Well, I should, uh, you know, I'll qualify anything I say by noting I'm not a virologist or epidemiologist, um, but evolutionary concepts and methods are very much part of the discussion about viral outbreaks. So you'll see discussions right now about how closely related or how similar is the current set of samples of monkeypox from around the world to a previous outbreak in 2018, for example. Is there any, and is there any genetic difference? Um, and certainly the evolution of new variants of, of COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 virus are also very much uh, on people's minds. So as far as I've been following, um, I, and I do know some virologists and epidemiologists and speak with them about things, um, should we be worried? I think it's a lesson in the kinds of things we're likely to keep facing. Um, both monkeypox and SARS-CoV-2 are what we call zoonotic diseases, meaning they move from a non-human animal into human populations. And so that's something that, that is quite common and increasingly common. So if you name a virus, avian flu, or you name any of these kinds of things that, that are of concern, they're generally moving around across different species of animals and, and into humans. So both of those are examples of that. And those kinds of 
uh, zoonotic transmissions are increasingly likely as we increase in population size, we encroach on wildlife habitat, we engage in you know, different food sources. So bushmeat is, is a potential source of new viruses or you know, wet markets and those kinds of things. So I think in terms of um, a general concern about zoonoses, yes, this particular outbreak, um, I think it remains to be seen. Generally speaking, it it's unlikely, I think, to be a pandemic kind of virus in that it's not transmitted as easily among humans as, say, SARS. Um, however, what we don't know and what's atypical right now is the sort of extent of the outbreak outside of areas where it's normally found. So it's normally found in, in West and Central Africa where it's endemic and there are occasional outbreaks. There was a, an outbreak in the U.S. in 2003, but that was basically primarily transmission from infected prairie dogs that were pets and moving into their human uh, their human uh, owners. So is it likely to spread rapidly around the world? Not unless something changes quite significantly about the virus and how it's transmitted. And this is where the evolutionary questions come in, because when people are starting to look at the genome sequences of, of samples from around the world that are appearing and comparing those, there are quite a few differences relative to the most recent uh, example from 2018. What we don't know is what those differences specifically are and whether they're relevant to things like mode of transmission or how infectious it is. There are also two major groups of the monkeypox virus in Africa. So there's a West African clade or evolutionary group and a um, Congo Basin clade, and, and they differ in how dangerous they are. Unfortunately, the one that we're seeing is the West African clade, which seems to be significantly less virulent. So I don't know that this is, you know, this particular one is a high risk for becoming a pandemic again. And we hear people, lots of people saying, well, it's not going to be like COVID. Well, I, on the other hand, that's also what they said about COVID. Mm -hmm. A lot of cases, yeah, right? it's, you know, it's on, it's only in China. It's going to be like all those kinds of early things. Um, so I, I'm pretty wary about any claims that it's no big deal. And I'm also, uh, you know, frustrated and concerned with the way it's been uh, framed in a lot of discussions as being isolated or largely about certain demographics, you know, men who have sex with men. Um it just feels very reminiscent of the reporting early in, in the 1980s around AIDS. Uh, and, and it may very well be that this, this is a, you know, series of transmissions in within a community and that that will help us to mitigate the spread. But I worry that it's causing stigmatization. Um, and I don't, I don't think we know exactly how, how it's being transmitted right now. It's somewhat atypical. It's often described as, not moving from human to human very much, but clearly okay. it is in this case. Mm -hmm. um, the other danger, I think, with this one or some others, I mean, one of the issues with monkeypox now is um, it's related to smallpox. And up until the 1970s, people were being vaccinated against smallpox. But once it was eradicated, which is a major success story for vaccination, um, we stopped vaccinating against smallpox. And so anyone my age or younger basically won't have that vaccination. And so we're more susceptible than we might've been, uh, you say in the seventies is number one. The other is if there is a if it is true that it gets into other mammals and then sort of 
you know, occasionally or regularly moves back into humans and causes these outbreaks. We really don't want it in the rat populations in major cities. Uh, you know, I think that would be yeah. not a very good thing if it got into, if it became endemic in major populated areas around the world and got into rodents and then say was moving regularly back into humans. It's not the same as a giant global pandemic, but it might mean regular outbreaks, which would be a concern. So I, I don't think it's SARS, but I would never dismiss something outright as don't worry about it. I know there's a tendency to not want to cause panic, but at the same time, yeah. we should be cautious and, and um, pay attention when we start seeing, you know, things like this that aren't usually found where it's being found now. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned SARS and you mentioned our, mm -hmm. our initial reaction to it, which was very, you know, kind of like you know, we weren't yep. too worried about it. We didn't think it would come here. So I want to kind of get your reaction to when the virus first broke out before it even got to Canada, or at what point did you start noticing uh, there was a SARS outbreak and what were your thoughts in terms of that? So I do, I remember early reports when it was still isolated uh, in terms of the, the breadth of the outbreak to, to, to Wuhan um, and I had a, I have a colleague who had who is uh, originally from China and has students who were and one of his students was in Wuhan. Her, her family lives there and was stuck in the lockdowns that happened there. You know they were closing off borders and transportation outside of the out of the region. Um, and so it seemed like it was maybe becoming more serious. So every now and then there's you know a virus starts. And then we go, is this the next big one? Is this a, you know, is this going to be it? And so I think often there's a, there's a sense, okay, no, it's not. It's, it, it's, it's more isolated. It's not even SARS-1, which did become, you know, it had a big impact, for example, in Toronto, but it didn't become like COVID. Um, and I think a lot of us sort of felt, okay, well, it's restricted to this region in China. It's not a particularly severe thing. It's sort of like a bad flu. I, you know, that, a lot of that discussion was, was around early on, uh, you know, that seems to have somehow become the, the common, uh, narrative now again, it's, you know, it's a flu, it's a cold, which is really remarkable since about 15 million people have died in the last two years. Um, but when we closed the university, when we were all sent home, which was in March of 2020, uh, I started thinking, okay, this is not the usual, you know, early signs that it might be problematic and then it fizzles out. This is like, this is potentially serious. Um, I do know, I think a lot of, so, so in, in our department, um, I think we took it fairly seriously. Um, there was a lot of discussion about what was gonna happen well, two things. One is to how to finish out that semester. So, you know, the courses were still underway and suddenly everyone's being sent home. And that's where that infamous word pivot, you know, became widespread. We're pivoting to an online format. And there was a lot of discussion about how to get through that uh, end of that semester. And then there was discussion about what might this mean for the upcoming fall semester, uh, you know, September of 2020. And I think a lot of universities a lot of, of faculty instructors you know sort of thought okay we just need to get through this and then we're back to normal whereas at least in our department we kind of said let's let's take it seriously and let's try to have some guiding principles for how to handle this and and one of them was let's not develop a whole bunch of new educational approaches that are only useful for one semester let's do, let's use it as an opportunity 
to think about, you know, accessible formats and to think about flexible, you know, assessments and all that kind of uh, thing and things that we'll want to keep potentially after fall. So I think we took it fairly seriously right off the bat. I also um, was involved in in developing and and running a, what we called a massively multidisciplinary course on pandemics. where we had a bunch of different panelists, you know, each week talk about a different aspect of pandemics, everything from, you know, current epidemiology and details of the SARS virus to, you know, impacts on the music industry and theater and, you know, how is this impacting food security and housing, um, nature of employment and, and, you know, ancient plagues and path and, um, and uh, pandemics too. So it was very, very interesting, but we started playing that in May of 2020. To offer in fall. So we were obviously, you know, looking back, we were obviously thinking this is probably going to be going on for longer than a few weeks. I know there were some yeah. folks that thought, okay, we just get through, you know, get through the exams at the start of April and then we're back to normal by fall. I think we were thinking it's probably not going to be. Yeah, no. And as, as, as students, uh, I was a student at that time, that's the feeling we did get as well, because we were just getting whatever... <laughs> Whatever it seems like the school's doing is what we think, okay, this is probably what's going to happen. So a lot of us were, you know, some of us that are athletes are hoping, okay, we have, we're going to get back to the fall season. We're going to play sports. Everything's going to get back to normal. Clearly that did not happen. Uh, Did you believe at that time that we'd be, I guess it's impossible to know, but uh, and you talk, Griffey talked about how you guys develop your courses for the long term, but did you believe as a, in terms of this still being a pandemic, you see, you, did you think we would still be dealing with that two years, two years I, later? No, I didn't. Um, I had a lot of hope in vaccines. And I, so I knew that a lot of groups were working hard on vaccine development. And, you know, it, it was sort of around January, I think we had them. And um, I remember getting my first shot. So you may remember there was there, Canada had kind of a much slower rollout of vaccines than the U.S. And so you were seeing people, you know, friends were in in the states were getting their shots, and you're like, hmm, can't wait to get mine. And we're waiting, right? Yeah. Um, and so then we, when they finally started rolling out in Canada, I remember going and getting the first shot and feeling like really kind of emotionally overwhelmed by it, just like. Like we've been through this really, really difficult period. And finally, you know, we've, we've got this, this amazing tool that was developed in just absolute record time, um, massive undertaking to roll this out around the world too. And I just felt this huge sort of relief and gratitude to the scientists who had worked on it. And, um, well, it didn't turn out, you know, that way. I I think, uh, so no, I, I don't think I thought at all we would be, still in this position we're in. I also didn't think we would be um, just deciding we're done. Like, I really didn't think that's what would happen. I mean, um, you know, we all put, there's a whole thing of, you know, flatten the curve and we all kind of were doing our thing and um, making sacrifices and, and so on. Initially, a lot of that had to do with trying to keep hospitals, you know, functional and healthcare workers safer and, you know, so that sort of stuff. Uh, that spirit seems to have evaporated. I think, you know, vaccines didn't solve it. And maybe it was naive to think they would, given sort of how this virus evolves, which is very quickly. Um, And 
So I think I might have been a little optimistic about how it would end uh, with vaccines. And then boosters also has not done it. So we really need next gen vaccines. And the other thing that happened, and this is probably one of the most important things, is we did not roll out vaccines everywhere. Um, I think the approach which you, you know, I mentioned the experience of watching the U.S. rolling out their vaccines, and we had we were lagging far behind, and it was getting very frustrating. This sort of national or even provincial division in how things are handled um, is a big part of the problem, I think. So, you know, if you look at vaccine rates in Africa and other um, developing parts of the world, it's very low, and the access, some of that is hesitancy, which I think is well earned through the history of colonial medicine. But at the same time, it's access. And we just haven't provided, uh, you know, they've not lifted patents. They've not, we've not lived up to our promise of, of global vaccination. And we're, I think we're seeing how enormously problematic that is, not just morally, but it means you will not defeat a virus like this locally. A pandemic is not yeah. local by definition. And I think that's what, a big mistake that we made. We did not emphasize uh-huh. You know the notion that no, we're not, nobody's safe unless we're all safe, and and I think we've learned that. Well, I hope we've learned that lesson, but it was the hard way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious if you if you know why uh, COVID was such you know a virulent uh, virus and wh- how why it evolved so quickly because we've already had we've, we've had Omicron, you know we have the I think BA point two. Uh, yeah, and we're on BA four and BA five now. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, so. Um, What's happening? So it, it's useful, I think, and, and relevant to distinguish between two different properties of a virus that you might be interested in. So transmissibility is one, which is sort of how easily and, and uh, rapidly it can spread among individual hosts. And then virulence, which is how much damage it does to the host. So um, the original SARS-CoV-2 was not super virulent i mean i i think we've or transmissible i think we've seen uh things get worse in both cases so you know variants that are certainly more transmissible um we also know that even if and i i can come back to this but even if a new variant is milder uh, i think in a lot of cases those claims have been proven Incorrect. But even if one is milder, but it's high, it's much more transmissible, you're still going to get a lot more hospitalizations and deaths just, you know, due to sheer numbers. Mm-hmm. So what is it about the virus? Well, um, I think, you know, it has it, it, it has a, a, a high mutation rate. So that means that a lot of mistakes get made when it's being replicated and they're not corrected. It, it has a small um, RNA genome and those are tend to be pretty error prone and it's present in very large numbers within individuals who get infected um so one group did an analysis they tried to estimate basically how many copies of the virus are there out there in the world right now um and looking at you know that's a combination of how many hosts are infected with it and then how many copies are there in a host when they get you know when 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 they're fully infected and they they calculated, you know, it's basically enough out there um, to have every single possible, at least single base mutation happening and being transmitted to a new host every day. So, I mean, there's not a lot of genes. It's, you know, 30 genes or something. And um, 
and it's error prone. And so basically the more copies of the virus you have out there being replicated, the more opportunities for mistakes to get made. Uh, the more copies there are in an individual, the more opportunities there are for those mistakes. And so you get, you know, new variation arriving, arising. Um, it, you know, viruses don't want anything. They don't have a strategy. They're just little bits of information that get replicated better or worse than alternative sequences. Errors happen. Sometimes they make the virus less successful. Sometimes they make it more successful. In the case of new variants that spread around the world, they're kind of by definition more transmissible or more infectious or more able to escape immunity or otherwise have some advantage over what was there before. So, you know, if you go back and look at the original, if you look at the hospitalizations, for example, of the original strain, um, it's kind of amazing. to. Th I remember, I do remember, you know, wow, we might hit 1,200 cases a day and that being a mm -hmm. scary thought. Well, we were at 100,000 cases a day in Ontario you know, not that long ago. And so our scale has changed dramatically in terms of what we're seeing as reduction. I, you know, people point out, well, hospitalizations are dropping, but they're still higher right now in Canada than they have been at any point in the pandemic, except for the BA1 wave that we just had. So, I mean, we're kind of moving our, our acceptance. So what makes it particularly um, transmissible or, or mutable um, you know, it's a fairly small particle. It, I think we got it wrong early on with mode of transmission. You know, we, a lot of surfaces getting wiped down, a lot of cloth masks. Uh, Amazon boxes getting wiped down. That, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and so it turns out now that's probably not the main mode. It's probably in, you know, aerosols of various sizes and hanging in the air and, you know, you treat it more like cigarette smoke than, you know, something that's on, on surfaces. Um, it, uh, it's, it, it, the way it gets in, like I think respiratory viruses are much more easily transmitted, say, than a sexually transmitted virus or something that requires, uh, you know, very prolonged exposure and close physical contact or anything like that. It can, if it's in the air, it can move around much more quickly. Uh, it replicates fast. It can invade a whole bunch of different tissues, um, you know, there's a bunch of those different kinds of properties, I think, that make it um, a pretty successful at getting around the world. Plus, uh, you know, we haven't had a, a major pandemic, you know, on this scale for 100 years. And, and as much as we have much better medical intervention, we also have global travel, larger, much larger populations and denser populations and all those kinds of things, too, that, that you know, contribute to the spread of an emerging virus. So I think it's, it's um, I think the other thing is that it, um, the way it infects cells. So it, it uses a certain receptor that's quite common across different animals for one. So there's likely to be, you know, reservoirs, you know, you see it now reports that it's showing up in deer and stuff like that. So there's reservoirs of it. That probably hasn't been a major factor yet, but it might be why it persists for a while longer um uh, but it also means it can get into a whole bunch of different cell types and cause all kinds of other issues um another factor is that you can transmit it asymptomatically so if you're you know let's say you get a virus and it basically incapacitates you rapidly you're not able to walk around and spread that to others but if you're infectious for a while before symptoms show up or they never show up 
uh, you're much more likely to transmit that. I think another thing was that early on, um, I think it's less true with some of these new, with newer variants, but a lot of the discussion was about it's mostly having major effects on the elderly. Um, and, you know, it became kind of a, well, we need to keep it out of, you know, um, long-term care facilities and hospitals and so on. But most everybody else is, is kind of, it's, you know, not so bad. And so I think that also maybe played a role. Uh, the fact that, you know, it was showing up in severe, at least early on, it was seen as showing up in severe um, manifestations in, in and only really in, in particularly vulnerable populations. So a lot of, we weren't doing a lot of stuff with, you know, mitigating in other ways, but uh, you know, it's interesting to think back to that early period. I was thinking the other day about going to the grocery store early on and you couldn't find flour or toilet paper or uncertain yeah. you know, soup aisles. People just didn't know what to do. We just really didn't know what mm-hmm. to do. I don't think we had any real concept of how it spread or anything. Yeah, no. And in terms of, let's say, um, the provincial response, because back then, especially when the virus first came out, we didn't have a vaccine. There was different strategy. You have herd immunity, hard lockdowns, you have different strategies. And as we get vaccines, things have started to shift in Ontario here. We have we have we have vaccines. Uh, Lockdowns are pretty much or restrictions have been pretty much very, very, very loose. do you th- believe we're moving too fast and we've accepted kind of like, okay, this virus is here or what do you, or do you think we're um, going the right way? So there's a few, I, there's a few different concepts in there. And I, I so one of them is, you know, um, herd immunity. Was that ever a viable option? Mm, I, I, you know, I did, I do remember hearing about that quite a bit. Um, and especially the notion that once you have a combination of vaccination and prior infection, you'll hit a certain point. So the idea of, of herd immunity is there's just enough uh, of the population that's that's now immune that it, it, contain, it essentially contains any further outbreak because there's just not a lot of available hosts anymore. A um, couple things that are... Pro- so there's a few reasons why that isn't working and won't work. And one of them very clearly is that you can get reinfected. Immunity wanes regardless of whether it was uh, through vaccination or prior infection, but reinfections now, you know, in a month, you can get it again. So that's not going to be possible. Um, in terms of lockdowns, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that you could say we had hard lockdowns in Ontario. We had some, you know, we had schools shifting to remote, you know, we had stores were closed and you had to pick stuff up curbside. And, you know, there's a, we had a, we certainly had a number of restrictions, um, but we didn't have anything like what you saw in China or even in Australia and other places where they were, you know, basically stay at home orders that were strongly enforced and, and those kinds of things. I don't know that we really had anything quite on that scale. Um, the flip side is, you know, removing those protections. So I think there are a number of things that have that are a that are moving too fast. I think um you know, removing mask requirements in schools, I like just outright. And in fact, you know, so my kids are still in school. Uh, we had to make a decision about whether to send them back in person or not. And in the end, we decided to once they had both uh, had their shots. Um, but they still mask, but maybe, you know, half their class doesn't. And then at the same time, school boards were not just removing mask mandates, but they were saying no more cohorting, no more 
you know, preventing um, large assemblies, you know, they're eating lunch together and all. So they just removed everything all at once. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that was, a. I I mean, you know, we have a combination of uh, new variants that are more transmissible or at least, or escape immunity or otherwise have an advantage. And at the same time, people are just kind of getting over stuff. Now that said, um, you know, masks are, uh, are, um, they've become a political point and um, it's mixed, I think, where we are with masks. So, you know, wearing a cloth. So for example, if you're walking around with a mask under your nose, then it's not doing anything. So if that's the requirement, wear a mask, but people are wearing it like that, then it is going to be kind of pointless, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Cloth masks, I think we've realized are, you know, the the, the idea of a cloth mask. And I look, I sewed a whole bunch of cloth masks for my kids and Mm -hmm. for me, my wife, um, early on, because we were thinking droplets, right? The the whole idea was these these fluid droplets and, and a cloth will block that. Well, with a, an airborne uh, transmission mechanism, that's not effective. So again, if you think about it like cigarette smoke and you put your you know cloth mask on, it's not going to do a, a, that much. Uh, but if people, if we had, for example, a program um, uh, to distribute N95s or K95s or some you know equivalent respirator style, or even better, people were wearing you know elastomeric ones. Um, then it might be significantly better. And also people are actually wearing them correctly. I think it would make a difference, but uh, it's so political now and it's become, it's become a statement um, one way or the other on either side at this point. Right. I think it's, I hesitate to use terms like restrictions. Like I don't think having to wear a mask is a restriction per se. It's a protection you put in place. Um, in the same way that you, you, you know, you have to wear seatbelts or you can't drink and drive. And I mean, I guess you could frame those as restrictions, but really they're meant to be protections for yourself and for others. Um, so we kind of removed everything at once, you know, capacity limits and all that sort of thing. And, and the other thing that's happened, that's really kind of disheartening is the framing of it as, you know, people are ready to move on at different times. Um, and there's a lot of kind of, I don't know why I don't know the psychology of this or the sociology of this at all. I have no idea why this happens, but the idea that, you know, maybe you're feeling anxiety and you still want to wear a mask. That's okay. You know, mm-hmm. um, well, maybe you should feel some, some anxiety. There's a global pandemic and it's not over. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an unreasonable reaction. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know how to handle that. I think it's going to be very difficult to reinstitute any kind of large-scale protections like that because of that politicization and um, because people have been told. Like, the the messaging has become like it's basically over. And I don't know where that comes from. Look, the U.S. right now is in the middle of a surge. You know, they're reporting 100 to 200,000 cases a day. That's the reported number. It's maybe five times that. And they and if you were to go back three weeks, they were all about, we're not going to have a surge like they had in the UK and Canada. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. I mean, yes, it is. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, I just don't know why we can't, why we've decided to do that or why governments and public health agencies, I think, I think they maybe 
feel they can't do anything more. And so it's better to just get people to be calm and go out and do their thing. But um, you don't get to decide a pandemic is over. Like you just, we're tired of it. So it's over. That's not how biology works. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm curious as as to uh, personally, how you feel about the, about this. Do you think that, you know, politics has kind of entered your field uh, of science? Cause obviously the, our, the provincial leader people and our leaders you know they make decisions quote-unquote mm-hmm. based on what they're getting told by their medical board etc but also they make their own mm-hmm. decisions too so it's, yeah. it's it's a mix it's it's a mix so do you think it, it's entered the the field of science in terms of politics it's yeah pol- so science has never been free of political influence science first of all i mean science is done by humans and humans are not you know, unbiased. And so we, we have structures. We try to uh, work with within that in science, but there's always, there's always uh, various biases, the kinds of questions you ask and the kinds of things you study. And, and, you know, you see it right now with monkeypox. We see it right now. The kind, you know, the, the, the initial observation, it seems to be in this particular community. Let's really focus on that. Um, you know, I, there's, there's various people who are pointing out, you know, this is a, this is a community that's fairly attuned to their health because of, you know, this exact thing happening in the eighties. Um, you know, AIDS was originally called GRID, which is gay related immunodeficiency, right? That's how it was framed initially before it became known as AIDS. So there's a community that's very attuned to their health and very, I think, sensitive to that kind of framing you know, they may very well be much more likely to, you know, say, I don't know what this, you know, symptom is, I'm going to get checked out and be, you know, um, reporting it. You saw the same thing when Omicron arose and was first detected in South Africa. Um, doesn't mean it arose in South Africa. South Africa has a very sophisticated surveillance system for, for pathogens, and they found this variant and reported it to the world. And how did we react? We banned travel from a bunch of African countries, including ones where it had not been detected yet. Whereas it showed up in Europe and we did not ban any travel from those countries. So, I mean, you know, these decisions, these biases are always sort of part of that. Um, For sure. So evolutionary biology is not without political, you know, effects, especially in the U S but also in Canada to, to, to a slightly lesser extent. But there's objections to it. Um, climate change, you know, is another highly politicized uh, topic, you know. Um, so it's, it's certainly not um, free of that. I'm a little bit surprised at how much it is in this area and how willing um, certain medical professionals seem to be to go along with it. Like, I, you know, there's a lot of what some people are describing as sort of minimizing happening right now, you know, that, um, well, you know, it's not that it's not that bad and the rates are coming down. And, you know, a lot of people were very wrong about what would happen with Omicron or did not think there would be one. They thought we're, you know, you can go back and look at, you know, a year ago statements from top level uh, public health leaders in various countries who are like, okay, it looks like you can return to normal. We've got vaccines and stuff. And then Omicron hit. And like worst, you know, like in some places, one of the worst waves yet. And and then you had right on the heels of that, you had BA2. 
I I don't even know if you know that you know think well you want to talk about is it political there there's political and then there's also I think this notion of um messaging let's just let's maybe not call it necessarily political but there is a priority within uh, I think public health to keep people from experiencing undue fear and I and lots of times that probably makes sense but it can go too far and so for example if you the World Health Organization in 2020 you know, said, we're going to call it the virus that causes COVID-19. We're not going to refer to it as SARS-2. And the reason, one of the main reasons we're not going to call it SARS-2 is that causes anxiety. And it can create stigmatization, you know, say of Asian populations because of Mm -hmm. SARS-1. So there's a decision that's not, that's not a scientific decision, right? That's, that, that's a communication, psychological, sociological decision. You could argue political or Otherwise, I guess, but it, but you know, the idea of minimizing fear, and I think that's some, we're seeing a way too much of that right now. And I think you know, even something like not calling uh, the new variants. So some of the so you know some of the new variants BA two, BA four, and BA five are derived from BA two. Um, they're they're more different from you know Omicron than Delta was from Alpha, but we don't give them new names. We just keep calling them subvariants. Who decides that and why? Um, let's say if Omicron had come and we had this wave, and then we said, and Pi is now here. Instead of saying BA2, you know, subset of Omicron, we said the Pi variant is now. And then BA4 and BA5 were Rho. You know, would we have responded differently? I think we might. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. We sort of go, ah, it's all Omicron. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot of those kinds mm-hmm. of decisions, communication decisions. Um, I think sometimes probably with the best intention to kind of prevent panic, but I I don't know that panic is, you know, such a concern. I feel like there's too much fear about panic. I, I think mm-hmm. re, people, most people can handle realistic information. And I see it with monkeypox now too. Well, it's usually mild. It's mostly in this one community. We've known about it for a long time. We have a vaccine. It's not transmitted easily from human to human. So don't worry about it. I'm like, yeah, okay. But, you know, it's never showed up like this before outside of, outside of places where it's endemic. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's another thing, the use of the word endemic. You know, mm-hmm. uh, don't worry, yeah. SARS will, uh, COVID will become endemic. And then it's, you know, it's manageable. Well, malaria is endemic in parts of the world. Tuberculosis is endemic. Um, monkeypox is endemic. I don't, it doesn't mean nothing to worry about it just means that it's a little bit more stable you know in terms of not these massive waves and it's not all over the world at once but it does not something you want mm-hmm. you know, it's not a it's not yeah. a good end goal <laughs> yeah and my actually my last question is about the end goal the, yeah how do we how do we see how do we see this uh ending how long are we going to be dealing with the virus or does it completely die out like you know we seem to believe yeah, so I think there's there's um, it's hard to know what the what the what the end will be now. I feel like we're not we are not trying very hard at this point to influence the outcome. I think we're kind of accepting what happens, and the the problem with that is that um, when you don't engage in mitigation, when you let there be these big waves, and you let you know um, some parts of the world go unvaccinated and so on. And that's where you get new variants arising. And we've seen that over and over again already. 
And those variants, if they become dominant, it's because they have some advantage, right? And that's either they're more transmissible, meaning they hang in the air longer, or they're in higher viral loads, or they infect more you know, quickly, or they replicate faster, whatever it is, or uh, they escape immunity. They have slightly different ways of getting around the immune system so that prior infection or vaccination isn't effective or isn't as effective. And we're already seeing that, you know, as I said, reinfection is a thing. Um, and there's animal reservoirs, non-human animal reservoirs that mean it will be really difficult to eradicate it. Like it could keep showing up. Uh, people are not taking precautions at this point. I mean, you know, uh, we've got uh, what blows my, there's two things that kind of blow my mind the most right now. One is medical conferences. So people are, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere, they're kind of posting these photos. Like here's a, here's the, you know, public health physician conference and it's all these unmasked people in small rooms and, and you just go well look they're not taking it they're not taking precautions so why should people mm-hmm. in stores and bars and stuff and then airplanes uh how do you think new variants spread around the world primarily right uh so mm-hmm. just it's sort of wild to me so i think what we've we've seen is people have decided so what so here's what i don't know um at some point when people realize that's not working like it's not correct to think that um, just let it, that we're done, and that you know we've all had it. It's not that big a deal. I, so at some point, people might realize. Uh, I seem to see a lot of people getting it. Like I, this this period right now, I've never known so many people that had COVID as I do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it used to be like you did, maybe you know someone who got it. Now it's like almost like there's <laughs> multiple people that I know who have mm-hmm. had it recently. Um, and some getting it again. So, so maybe we'll realize, Hey, it's not over. Uh, the other possibility is, um, people will start to get more clued into the risk of long COVID. So that's also been heavily downplayed, but there's increasing number of studies kind of indicates one that just came out from the CDC that was saying that, you know, one in five, that's worse than roulette, like Russian roulette. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, one in five, <laughs> is not a good odds. And if you, and if it's one in five, every time you get infected uh, and you can get infected multiple times per year, you know, I, I don't know how we're going to handle, even if it's just people being sick, you know, kind of fatigued for a month, like that's the best case scenario um, for a long COVID. I mean, that's the sort of most mild version of a long COVID. Never mind two years of, you know, organ system problems and immune function problems and heart attacks and all that. Um, you know, you don't want this just circulating around over and over and over again. That yeah. said, I'm, I am optimistic about a few things. Um, I think there's next generation vaccines um, that are under development. So uh, nasal sprays, for example, that actually do confer protection against infection. What was one of the issues with the current first gen vaccines? I mean, they were designed against original uh, COVID, right? So, or SARS-CoV-2. So, they, so they're they they're not necessarily effective against the new variants, uh, or as effective, I should say. Um, they they are effective at preventing severe illness and death and so on, but they they're not really stopping transmission the way we would need. Um, they some of these newer ones though may mitigate transmission, which is really important, right? Keep the cases down, fewer replications happening out there, fewer new variants. Um, maybe longer lasting immunity. They're more tailored to the kinds of, of uh, changes in the virus that we've seen with new variants since the original 
So those kinds of things. Um, vaccines are still not approved for kids under five. So when that comes and we get that rolled out, that will be, a, I think, a significant uh, factor. I think ventilation improvements and air filtration, so indoor air quality generally is a, is really important for all kinds of health reasons. But if we took that seriously, um, lots of places are, I think, you know, uh, I've seen different examples where, you know, businesses are displaying CO2 monitors, the results of CO2 monitoring to say, like, we have pretty good ventilation, right? Um, mm -hmm. People become more insistent on that. If we had to reinstate mask guidelines or mask mandates, but it was not wear anything you want. It was, you have to wear a properly fitting, you know, N95 or something that might also help. So, you know, global vaccine equity is going to be extremely important in all this. Um, so, you know, antivirals that help uh, when you get infected and you can be, you know, treated more quickly. You don't spend as much time in the hospital. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things coming that could make a big difference. So I'm not a, a, a huge pessimist. I, I'm I'm frustrated by the minimizing and the 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 messaging. You know the narrative that it's over already and you can go about your business. I think that's just not correct. And we're seeing every day that that is a very dangerous thing to be conveying to people. Um, but I'm also I think you know my my sort of view is like hold on hold the line because there's reinforcements coming there's new vaccines there's vaccines for kids there's ventilation improvements there's antivirals you know we've got more tools coming you just need to kind of hang on um, a bit longer and protect the people who are most vulnerable that's the key mm -hmm. but th with the with the huge like seemingly increasing recognition of the problem of long COVID nobody's you know invulnerable to that, even if it's a mild initial infection. So I think we need to protect or protect everybody. Um, so I think the end game is it, it's not going to go away forever. Um, I think eradication is probably unlikely at this point, but we can get it down to a level, you know, so then, for example, the 1918 flu uh, pandemic, that strain is still around, but it doesn't oh, cause you know, the, it doesn't cause the kind of thing that we saw in 1918. It's still circulating. And every now and then there's some, you know, issues, but we have flu shots. We have immunity from other exposure. You still have to get your flu shot every year. You're probably going to get the flu once a year, once every other year, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's much more manageable. Um, it's probably going to be more like that. Did you get your COVID shot okay. this year? I see. Okay. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. I, I could see us moving in that direction. And then it's not, it, it, no pandemics last forever, but Mm -hmm. how much damage do we have to endure until then? And it's not automatic either. I think you can take active steps. I think just letting it go or pretending it's over. Well, the virus is out there still replicating and evolving. And um, whether we think it's over or not, that's still happening. Mm -hmm. And on that note, I don't think it's a better way to leave, <laughs> to leave our conversation. That optimism, very cautious as well. I think that's the best way to go about it. Professor Ryan Gregory, thank you for giving me your time and us your time today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, and I really appreciate what you're doing with your uh, with, with this effort. It's great to, to have this kind of communication. So thank you for the invite. No problem, no problem at all. And yeah, thank you everybody for listening and uh, good night. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you.